0: Hello and welcome back to Dating by Design. I'm your host Jordan, and today I am going to do a deep dive into Esther Perel's groundbreaking work, Mating in Captivity. If you have ever had a little bit of panic about how to maintain sexual connection over the long-term, or you like me have avoided long-term relationships because the decline in sexual chemistry is disturbing, uh, then you will want to stick around for this episode. Before we get into it, a reminder to rate, review, subscribe, and share this podcast and follow me on Instagram. And if you want me to answer your dating questions on air, shoot me an email at datingbydesign at gmail.com. All right, let's go. I want to begin by telling you a little bit about my dating history. In my 20s, I was a hot mess, just like any other proper 20-year-old and I had wildly unchecked disorganized attachment. Meaning, when I started to like someone, I would simultaneously pull away from them because being seen and loved is really scary to me. And I would also smother them out of fear that they would abandon me. It was very confusing for everybody involved. (laughs) But at the time, here's what my dating patterns looked like. I would start seeing somebody and we would have pretty good or even great sex. And then I would rush to get to know this person, like really, really insist that we bare our souls to each other because that gave me a sense of safety. I got these feelings of safety when I was getting frequent sex and a very quick emotional attachment. I was also reenacting some of my childhood wounds, but I wouldn't know that until about 10 years later. (laughs) Inevitably, of course, a few months would go by and we would start having sex less and less, and this decrease in sexual frequency would make me feel tremendously insecure and anxious, and those insecurities would spill over into other parts of the relationship, eventually culminating in the downfall of the entire relationship. I repeated this pattern many, many times. (laughs) Now, I take responsibility for my role in these dynamics, but of course, it takes two to create a relationship, so I'm not placing all of the blame on myself, but there are absolutely things I could have done better. Until I did a relationship inventory, which I plan to talk about in a future episode, I was unaware of this pattern. And after reading Mating in Captivity, I was finally able to really solidify why this kept happening, why I would... Insist on a really deep emotional connection immediately with somebody, and then months would go by and uh, the relationship would end because our sexual connection faded. Being aware of the problem is, of course, only the first step, but this awareness has led to some serious adjustments in the way that I approach dating now. I had revelation after revelation reading this book, and that's why I wanted to share my takeaways with you. Maybe some of these things will resonate with you. Esther Perel is one of the most esteemed relationship psychologists in the world, maybe in history. Her work on intimacy and relationships is nothing short of groundbreaking. She also has a podcast called Where Should We Begin, which is an invaluable resource. I definitely recommend subscribing to it. It's like a real life version of the book that we're talking about today. Like any good psychologist, Perel doesn't offer a silver-bullet solution to any of these problems. What this book does offer, however, is a nuanced perspective and lots of tools that can help couples on their way to discovering what works for them. Ultimately, I recommend that you read this book yourself. The central premise of the book is this. It is a dreadful but accepted fact that romance and excitement fades over time in long-term relationships. We are told it comes with the territory of being with the same person for years or even decades. In fact, studies show that the frequency of sex diminishes dramatically around the third year of marriage. And then, of course, the quote-unquote sexless marriage is seemingly everybody's worst nightmare, and at the same time, most people's reality. But what if it didn't have to be that way? First, a little history on how we got here. The Industrial Revolution and our descent into late capitalism caused a shift in the way that we as a society have sex. Work and family have become so separated that it has created conditions in which all of us are super lonely and disconnected. We all have to work so much just to barely scrape by. And if you're looking at Maslow's hierarchy of basic human needs, intimacy and connection is kind of in the middle. And we can only get to the middle of the pyramid if we have all of the things at the bottom, like food, shelter, health, personal security. Most of us barely have those things. And those of us who do are like one missed paycheck away from stumbling back down to the bottom of the pyramid. So it's no wonder that our culture is all out of whack when it comes to sex and intimacy. We're all holding on by a thread. Our puritanical culture is so focused on duty and self-reliance and independence that we create these conditions in which it's looked down upon to share the burden with others. That puritanical culture is also the same one that prevents us from having proper sex education in schools. And of course, this whole like level of self-reliance affects the way that we relate to one another. We are all profoundly uncomfortable with vulnerability, and if you're not, it's probably because you had to work really fucking hard to get there. For most of us, we can't have good sex without some degree of vulnerability. And to add to that, sex is seen as taboo in American culture, so we are expected to hide it and hide from it. But sex is literally everywhere, and constantly shoved in our faces through media and advertisements. So we are all so goddamn conflicted about it all the time. So, of course none of us can connect meaningfully with our sexual selves, let alone the sexual needs and desires of another human. All of this creates an environment where couples find it challenging or even impossible to have open and vulnerable conversations about the sex they are or are not having. It creates an environment where we don't know how to tell our partners what we want. We're ashamed of our fantasies. We accept bad or no sex as the price of admission for the security of a long-term relationship. Most of us are comfortable with the fact that passion fades over time because in exchange we get security. But I have bad news for you. It doesn't really work that way. Both of these things are an illusion there is no guarantee that your relationship will remain stable over time. We can somehow accept that passion over a lifetime is an illusion. But the same is also true for stability. Nothing is stable forever. People get divorced, spouses have affairs, we have children, we have to move. Marriage is not even as close to as stable as we like to think it is. So this all probably sounds pretty dire. Capitalism isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Vulnerability is really hard, especially for people socialized as men. Marriage and long-term partnership don't offer security or passion. Okay, yeah, (laughs) it is a bit of a bummer, but I do have good news. Esther Perel offers some incremental shifts in perception that might help maintain both a sexual and emotional connection over the long term. The first major revelation I had from this book is essentially Perel's thesis statement. She maintains that closeness is actually antithetical to desire. And this is related to my story at the top of the show. Nearly all of my past relationships have ended because of bad or declining sex. And in all of my relationships, I rushed into an emotional connection so that I could feel a shred of security. I realize now that those two things are not unrelated. Perel says, quote, We create predictability in relationships, in an effort to make us feel more secure. Yet, the mechanisms that we put in place to make love safer often put us at more risk. We ground ourselves in familiarity, and maybe we achieve a peaceful domestic arrangement, but in the process, we orchestrate boredom. She goes on to say that desire and eroticism are energized by distance, by wanting. Love, however, closes the distance between us, creating repetition and familiarity, and that repetition and familiarity are numbing agents to desire. Of course, as a side note here, repetition and familiarity are like key components of being able to raise children together, And there's a whole chapter in this book about child-rearing that I'm not going to cover here because I don't have or want kids, but if you do, I definitely think you should check that out. So maybe you've heard of, or even personally experienced, the the partner who can no longer see their long-term loving partner as a sexual being after years of being together. It's like, all of a sudden, the lights are turned off. Perel argues that this is because the couple has become so close that they are basically fused. She says, in one of the best quotes in the whole book, When two become one, connection can no longer happen, because there is no one to connect with. Let that sink in for a moment. To make this idea more concrete, from my years of doing tech support, (laughs) if your computer won't turn on, but it's plugged in, plugging it in, isn't going to make it work. You have to unplug it first. You know, the old unplug it, plug it back in. So unplugging from one another is actually one of the solutions that Perel argues for. Most couples try to get closer when they're having marital troubles, right? They spend more time together. Maybe they go on a vacation. They pick up a hobby. But couples who aren't having sex actually need to spend more time cultivating their independent selves. They need to unplug from one another. To further this point, Perel's research shows that when a couple gets more intimate with each other, they also grow more concerned with the other person. Of course, that's only natural. You start to really care about someone the more that you know them. And yet, sexual excitement requires a certain absence of worry. It demands some degree of selfishness. When you feel completely responsible for your partner's feeling, it's very difficult to want to fuck them. (laughs) Perel has a great section dedicated to this topic where she details her one-on-one therapy sessions with a client who was experiencing this issue. In short, this man felt responsible for his wife's emotions due to a history of taking care of his own mother for far too long. He became so deeply concerned with whether or not he would hurt his wife emotionally or even physically that he could no longer have sex with her. Perel's solution was to unpack his caregiving complex and his relationship with his mother, so it was a very intricate process. Her chapter on the way that our relationships with our parents or caregivers fucks up our sex lives as adults, though, is fascinating, but it is a little bit too complex to cover here. I hope it's obvious that I am not advocating for you to only sleep with people that you don't care about. Rather, you should cultivate a sense of separateness from your partner so that you can miss one another. Have things to talk about. Be surprised by them again. Get out of your routines. In my experience in long-term relationships, I have this tendency to, like, fuse my entire life with my partner, which means, like, we have all of the same friends. We have, like, identical schedules between work and hobbies. So if I could offer a piece of advice from my own experience, it would be to, uh, if you find yourself in this situation, um, rekindle those friendships that you had at the beginning of your relationship. Find your friends again. Go out with your friends. Uh, Volunteer with them or by yourself. Um, Or, you know, discover a personal hobby that you can do by yourself. Uh, like reading or knitting or something. Um, I also recognize that pursuing an individual hobby or uh, time apart from like your family is really, really hard. And that goes back to what I was saying in the beginning with, you know, late capitalism and us being all separated from each other because of work. Like, I get it. It's not as easy as just like pick up a hobby. But even if it's really hard for you to get away from your family and work, like there's so little time between those two things, um, you know, try to cultivate a sense of separateness in yourself, like, you know, maybe read articles uh, about something new, learn something new about yourself, learn something new about the world. Um, Find new ways to surprise yourself and therefore surprise your partner. So closeness is antithetical to desire and, The way that most couples seek closeness is through talking, which brings me to main takeaway number two. Talk is not the only avenue to intimacy. Now this is really hard for me to hear, maybe it's hard for you to hear. Our culture sees talking as the primary factor in intimacy, where we're expected to disclose personal and private feelings in order to be close to someone. We are told, either directly or indirectly, if you haven't disclosed all of your deep dark secrets to somebody, then how close can you really be? And the way we process conflict in relationships is to talk, talk, talk. Listen, I love talking, obviously, I have a fucking podcast where all I do is talk, but that wasn't always the case. I used to process my emotions by writing them out and then going back to my partner with what I'd learned about myself or the situation. I communicate best in writing, not in speech. But the expectation in partnership is that you talk about everything. So that was the expectation that I had for my partners, and often the one that they set for me too. This came to a head in one of my long-term partnerships, where after a couple of years of being together, I felt us starting to really drift apart, like, emotionally, sexually, spiritually, in pretty much every way. And In my desperate bid for connection, I kept badgering my partner to talk to me. Like, I begged him constantly. Tell me what's going on. Talk to me about your feelings. There's gotta be something that you need to say to me. Let's talk about it so that we can move on. Let's talk about it so that I can feel close to you again. Esther Perel says that the pressure is always on the non-talker to change rather than on the talker to be more versatile. And this situation minimizes the importance of nonverbal communication. She goes on to say that traditionally, men communicate with their bodies, so what she calls talk supremacy puts men at a disadvantage because they are primarily nonverbal communicators. But women, too, are repressed by talk supremacy because it denies the expressiveness of the female body and reinforces the notion that women can only experience desire when it's based in love. Of course, in this relationship where I wanted my partner to just talk to me, there were a lot of other things wrong than, like, a lack of uh, intimacy. Of course, in this partnership where I needed my partner to talk to me about something, anything, um, it was later sort of revealed that the intimacy issues ran a lot deeper than just not being able to talk to each other. but. Talk intimacy makes sexuality even less important in your communication toolbox. But there are a lot of other ways to be intimate with your partners, like doing nice things or making attentive gestures or sharing projects. I also want to take a moment here to tell you a story of how this perspective changed the way that I approached a partnership just a few months ago. I started seeing someone who was just not very talkative He had a lot of other traits that I really admired, but this one thing made it feel like he just wasn't all that into me. He didn't really want to go into deeper things with me. All of our conversations were fairly surface level. He didn't like to process things with me, and that made me incredibly uncomfortable for the first few weeks that we were dating. I found myself questioning, often, whether or not he actually liked me, and it made me really insecure. I craved more intimacy. And then, after reading this chapter in this book, I realized, just because he didn't want to talk to me doesn't mean that he wasn't being intimate with me. I then started to look for how he expressed intimacy in other ways, and I realized that they were all around me. He always stocked extra pillows on my side of the bed. He was super enthusiastic about my podcast. He constantly wanted to expand our sexual adventures. Once I was able to see intimacy as something outside of or beyond talk, I was able to appreciate the relationship so much more, and I felt a lot more secure in it. I'm no longer seeing that person, but the lesson lives on in my interactions with other people. I still prefer verbal affirmations of intimacy, but I'm more in tune with nonverbal acts of intimacy too. Related to communication and intimacy, I think is this underlying need for control. If we know what our partner is thinking at all times, then we have control over the situation, right? Well, that brings me to the next point that I want to unpack, which is Perel's assertion that control chokes the life out of desire in relationships. It makes sense, right? The more control you have, the less mystery there is. I used to wryly assert that I was a certified control freak. (laughs) With six Capricorn placements, how could I not be? I liked to make the plans, I liked to execute on the plans, and I also liked to make backup plans for my backup plans. I was a very anxious person. (laughs) But that need for control extended to my partnerships. I was never the type of person to bluntly tell my partner what to do, but I did like to call the shots. Interestingly, ever since I discovered kink, I realized that I actually like when some decisions are made for me. And Perel makes the case that, when you need to have so much control, there is so much less to discover or talk about. She says that the solution is to give up some of that need to manage and micromanage. By relinquishing some of that control, we preserve the possibility of discovery. Surrendering control allows us to experience unfamiliarity and unpredictability. For me and a lot of people I know, asking sometimes intrusive questions can be a way for us to exert control. Things like, where have you been? Who was there? What were you talking about? We sometimes pass these inquiries off as if they're expressions of how much we care about our partner and we're so interested in their life, but we're actually usually asking because we're afraid. Infidelity is often our biggest fear, and in modern love and marriage, Cheating is seen as a massive betrayal because we rely on our partners for everything. They have to be the person we have the best sex of our lives with. They have to be our best friends. They have to be amazing parents to our children. They also should be our trusted advisors, our emotional companions, and our intellectual equals. So when cheating happens, we feel like this grand illusion of love has been totally shattered. So. We try to constrict our partner's options. We try to control them. We think if we keep a tight leash, we will secure fidelity from our partners. If I know everything they're doing and everyone they're talking to, there is no way that we will be bamboozled into getting cheated on or heartbroken. Unfortunately, it is often the opposite. When we tell our partners that they are not allowed to talk to an ex or fantasize about others or go to strip clubs or look at other people, we are... Exiling their erotic imagination to a place outside of our relationship. And when the erotic imagination is forced to exist outside of your relationship, then that is where people will go looking for it. I'm not saying that you have to go against your own moral or ethical beliefs to like make your partner not cheat on you. For example, if going to a strip club is something that is like completely non-negotiable for you, that's fine. You don't have to just like let your partner do that. But Maybe you can talk about other ways that your partner's strip club fantasy can be filled. You and I have been raised in a culture where talking about sex is taboo, so it's very scary. Your fear is not your fault, but you can take steps to control it and use it to deepen your relationship with your partner and bring more honesty and vulnerability into your discussions about sex. Because when monogamy or faithfulness becomes enforced compliance rather than a free expression of loyalty, we set the stage for affairs and transgressions. And that brings me to my next point. Something that I think is really challenging for couples, given the fact that we're expected to become one with our partners, is the acknowledgement that our partner's sexuality is a completely separate entity from us. But we must accept that their sexuality does not belong to us, it belongs entirely to them. And once we are able to accept that, we can actually leverage it to bring excitement back into our relationship. Our partners have a mysterious interior world that we will never understand. So curiosity about it can be a fun way to play and perhaps unlock some new erotic doors. You know, ask your partner questions about what they fantasize about and incorporate it into your sex lives. Now, don't be surprised or offended if their fantasies don't involve you. That's something that I've really struggled with in the past because that felt like a direct insult to my desirability, which is something that I am still unpacking how to, like, disconnect my value as a person from my desirability to other people. But Now I see my partner's fantasies as something that I can participate in alongside them as a fun and exciting thing that we do together, or it's just something about them that is a mystery that keeps things kind of exciting and spicy. Importantly, some people want to keep their fantasies entirely to themselves, and that is something that all of us should respect and support. The idea of sharing your fantasies with one another is supported by the concept of compersion, which is a term often used in polyamory where You feel happiness from watching your partner receive joy or pleasure from another person. And I think this works for a lot of reasons, but one is that we're seeing our partner through the new eyes of someone else's desire. We get to see what a stranger or another lover sees in our partner, the things that we might miss or not be tuned into. And that perspective shift can really work wonders for a lagging sex life. And the final takeaway, which was a minor piece in the book but a really big revelation for me, was about the solution that many relationship therapists have to the sexless marriage, which is scheduling sex. I floated this idea to a partner once and he was so vehemently opposed to it that I felt ashamed for even having brought it up. His argument was that scheduling sex takes all the fun and spontaneity out of it. Planning sex just isn't sexy and that's a pretty common reaction I think. But Perel pushes against that. Many couples get nostalgic about the early days of their sex lives when they couldn't keep their hands off of each other and sex came so easily to them, but this spontaneity, like so many other things we accept as truth about sex and relationships, is a myth. That's because even in the beginning of a relationship, Whatever happened in the moment was actually the result of hours or even days of preparation. I mean, think about it. You had to plan your outfit. You had to plan the restaurant. You were thinking about what you were going to talk about. All of this planning and production were part of the buildup. There was rarely any actual spontaneity. So trying to create it later in a relationship is almost an impossible task. So one solution could be to bring that production aspect back. Schedule sex, yes. Schedule a date, let yourselves get excited to do something new together, and let the anticipation build up over a few days. I'm a big proponent of the ritualistic parts of sex and intimacy, which I think get lost in long-term relationships, but an effort to recreate them could maybe get you pretty far. I know for me... The ritual of getting ready for a date is like an adornment ceremony. I feel like the process of turning on some music and choosing an outfit and slowly like putting on my makeup, all of this stuff puts me in this like luxurious sexual headspace that sort of prepares me for an evening of intimacy. And this is directly related to Emily Nagoski's research on responsive desire versus spontaneous desire. And the vast majority of people experience responsive desire. Like, they don't experience desire for a person until there's been some sort of trigger. Most people don't experience this, like, immediate turn-on effect when they, like, see their partner, for example. So putting yourself in a headspace, in the space of sex, can really help you build up this anticipation. And as we discussed earlier, anticipation is a key component of intimacy. So, we're all kind of stuck in this culture that traps us in being not as sexually successful as we all want to be or as we're expected to be, but I think the main takeaway for everybody is that closeness is not desire. I could go on for much longer about this book, but I'll stop here for now. I think mating in captivity should be required reading for long-term partnerships, but if reading isn't really your thing right now, I totally get that, and I hope this episode gave you some tools or ideas for rethinking some of the assumptions that we all hold about modern marriage and relationships. If you have a book about sex and relationships that you want me to review on the pod, let me know. In the meantime, we'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in, friends.